0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokhandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Sophie Kilvert, Private Client Manager at Seven Investment Management. Investing has traditionally been associated with trying to beat the market. But in recent years, investors have increasingly recognised that they can make handsome returns by tracking rather than trying to beat markets and one of the main ways to track markets known as passive investing is exchange traded funds or ETFs for short and there's no lack of choice of over a thousand ETFs listed on the London Stock Exchange so to help you home in on some of the better choices each year we compile the IC top 50 ETFs. Taha you've recently drawn up the latest version of this list so first of all What does the IC Top 50 ETFs list aim to do? Well,
1: it's it's meant to be a a starting point for investors. So when they've decided on what they want to do, they can come and look at the list and uh, see what the best choices are for a given strategy or asset class. So we pick out the best products to help build a simple portfolio.
0: So are you supposed to hold all 50?
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. No, not at all. As I said, this should, be the, this should be the second step in an investor deciding how to create a portfolio. They should decide how much they want to allocate to equities and fixed income, etc. And then come and look at the list and see what are the best products that help match exactly what they're trying to achieve.
0: Okay, so you set your asset allocation and then you look at the top 50 to try and help you express that asset allocation. Absolutely, yeah. Now, turning to the list, um, I think, as I said, there are more than a thousand ETFs listed in London Stock Exchange. So how do you whittle that down to 50?
1: So it it takes quite a long time. And, um, you know, I'm I'm happy to say I spent a long time doing this, and I think I've done quite a good job. But, you know, I would say that. (laughs) Um, So what we'd look at is we look at performance, how well the ETF tracks the index that it's following, the costs, the size, how easy it is to trade, things like that. And most importantly, Uh, What decides whether an ETF makes it into the list is the index it tracks, because there's no point in being good at tracking something that you don't want to be following. So that's the the most underlying component, the biggest underlying component.
0: Okay, and did you do all the research yourself?
1: Uh, No, not at all. That would be be reckless, I think. Um, I had a helpful panel of nine people. They helped me decide what was the best sectors to cover, what were the best ETFs, the, the providers. But most importantly, as I said, they helped me choose um, the index to track uh, and what was the best thing for at uh, this moment in time.
0: So specifically, what was the input?
1: So they provided guidance on perhaps saying how many UK equity ETFs we should have, how many US equity ETFs we should have, um, whether a product was good at what it did in the last year or so, if there was a, a better product that might be out there, things like that, you know. And and also, you know, what are the best underlying indices that might provide the best outcome for investors.
0: Okay, now we've been running this list for quite a few years. What changes did you make to the list relative to what was in it last year?
1: So out of the 50, I changed 14 this year. And most of those were down to um, a replacement product being slightly better, and that might be, you know, we've written about in, in the IC several times. There's a, there's a kind of price war going on ETF. So if a product became cheaper, then it might be it might be more appropriate for investors. And also, you know, just some things have kind of slightly fallen out of fashion. So. I took those ETFs out and replaced them with a better product.
0: Okay, and are there any other reasons why you maybe kicked an ETF out the list?
1: So one was uh, entirely based on performance. Um, it was tracking an index that the panel felt wasn't working as well as it should do, so that got replaced by a different product tracking, a completely different index.
0: What would be an example then of an ETF that you dropped from the list?
1: So the, the one I just referred to now is the SPDR S&P UK Dividend Aristocrats ETF. Uh, so that tracks the, the S&P index uh, that's mentioned in the title. The problem with that index, was it it's tilted towards dividend payers, and so it, it creates quite a niche um, allocation to the UK stock market. But they had some problems with the index composition over the last year. They were meant to remove Carillion before it went bust, and they didn't. Mm. Um, they, they accepted <laughs> the mistake there, and they've, they've kind of made amends, yeah. but the kind of mistakes that were made meant the panel had lost conviction on that method.
0: Now, you obviously dropped 14, so presumably you replaced them with something. What would be an example of uh, an ETF you added to the list?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the uh, the one we've added in that I think is the most interesting is um, the iShares Global Aggregate Bond Index, and that's S-A-G-G, is its ticker. Now, this one was only launched a few months ago, so that's why it wasn't included last year. Um, but since then, it has become hugely popular with institutional and private investors alike, and it's grown massively in size. And uh, the, what it does, it provides hugely broad access to fixed income markets and bond markets across the world so that's government debt corporate debt and has access to you know several thousand securities it's the best board access you can get via an ETF and it costs 0.1% so it's insanely cheap
0: Okay. Now, now, Sophie, do you think passive funds such as ETFs are a good way to invest?
2: They can be a brilliant way to invest. I mean, as Tahar was saying, they can be incredibly cheap. So to get access to all those bonds that he said for just 0.1% is absolutely phenomenal. And that cost really helps when you're constructing your portfolio, because obviously, at the higher fees you pay, that detracts from performance. They're also, I mean, as, as you said, there's over a 1,000 to choose from. So they offer enormous variety to track any sort of Sort of index. So they can be really good components of portfolios.
0: Taha obviously mentioned bonds, but ETFs track far more than just bonds. So what areas would you say that ETFs are particularly good for investing in?
2: I'd say that the main benefit uh, for using an ETF for an investment tends to be on much more mainstream indices so the big indices that you know because that's where you really get the cost benefit if you're investing in something a much smaller index or something that's not so widely available the cost of the ETF then goes up and that means that actually maybe you you might be better to look at an active fund instead but when we're talking about investing in the likes of a big the big UK indices the FTSE 100 or looking in the States at, at the, the S&P 500, they, using an ETF for
0: that sort of exposure can be really, really effective. Now, thinking about um, as was putting them to work, how do you use ETFs in your clients' portfolios? We use
2: ETFs quite a lot, and we always have done, really. They they, they came over from, from the United States. They were used much more in the United States. And, and sort of in the mid-2000s, we kind of started using them in, in our client portfolios. And we we use them in a variety of ways. So we use them to really allow us to flexibly allocate uh, between different asset classes because they're very easy to use. They trade like shares uh, and you can move in and out of them as and when you want. So we generally use a combination of both active funds and passive funds and we use our active funds as more long-term investment. We don't want to be moving money in and out of active managers all the time. So when we do want to make changes to portfolios we do that through using the passive funds which are much
0: easier to trade. OK, now we've highlighted quite a few virtues of ETFs, but nothing's perfect. So what would you say were shortcomings of ETFs? So they don't cover everything.
2: You're never going to find necessarily an ETF to cover every single type of investment. Um, although probably in a few years, someone will, will come up with pretty much anything. Um, what
0: would be an area
2: Let's say that they don't cover. They they don't cover some of the smaller stock markets around the world. And and also with some of those smaller stock markets, actually you maybe don't want to cover the whole of that market. An ETF probably isn't the right sort of investment for that. So in our portfolios at the moment, for example, we have an exposure to frontier markets. And for that we use an active manager because for that it's much more company specific than it is country specific. So there can be a great company in, in Peru or Chile, but you might not want to own the whole of the Peruvian or Chilean index, or even an ETF that covers Latin America. It's much more company specific than that. And that's where ETFs maybe aren't as good as actually using an active manager where you've got that human actually making making those
0: calls and making
2: those investment decisions.
0: Okay, so are there any particular types of ETFs you would resolutely avoid? Um, Personally, for me, I
2: I get concerned over some of the leveraged ETFs. uh, And I think it's important where When people are looking to put ETFs in their portfolio, they have a really good look at what's going on inside. And if you don't understand how that ETF is constructed, then don't invest in it. That's really, really important. Look at how the constituents are in there. Look at the weightings they use and look at whether they're actually holding the underlying or using a
0: synthetic method to do so. But if you don't understand it, don't invest in it. Very good point. You mentioned that for some markets you might prefer an active manager. So what do you think about investors who maybe only use ETFs to express their asset allocation and you know how important do you think it is to let's say have a mix of active and passive funds rather than just fall into into one category?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough. And active fund management hasn't had the best reputation of, over the years. And it's really hard for active managers in some markets to actually beat the index. Certainly, if you're looking at sort of large cap in the States, uh, then an active manager maybe doesn't add much value. Uh, but in, as I said, in some of the more esoteric indices, then active managers can really add value. And if you find the right active manager then they're worth their weight in gold and actually paying that little bit extra uh, that you will be paying over and above the cost of a passive investment can really be worth it so for my clients I tend to use a mix unless someone's incredibly fee sensitive um, in which case then then we would probably just steer them towards passive but for many many occasions actually paying that little bit extra for the active manager um, does pay
0: off. Thank you, Sophie. Some really helpful points. And see this week's magazine and the website for the newly updated version of the IC Top 50 ETFs. As the world's second largest economy, China is an area many investors can't afford to ignore. However, accessing this country's growing domestic companies has been difficult for foreign investors due to strict controls. However, from next month, buying Chinese equities is set to become easier. Taha, can you tell us more?
1: It's a bit of an accumulation of things that have been happening for the past seven years. So China's gradually been easing access to its market since 2011. Um, but the big thing this week, and this is it is, is significant in terms of how investors view China, is that MSCI, who have the biggest index range that covers the region, are going to include Chinese A shares. So Chinese A shares are onshore shares. Um, and investors who see they have Chinese exposure right now probably don't realise that they are investing in China mainly through Hong Kong, which are known as H shares. But a shares, which are listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen, they're going to be included in the MSCI indices for the first time. Uh, and that's um, so that's quite a big thing. From
0: next month, isn't uh, it? Yes, yep. from,
1: from June, it's going to be about 0.8% yeah. of the MSCI emerging markets index by September.
0: Okay. Now, what effects could this have on Chinese domestic shares?
1: There's, a, there's quite an interesting quirk with Chinese A shares. Because they aren't um, easily accessible by kind of foreign investors and sophisticated investors, there's a bit of a valuation problem in that domestic investors in China dominate the market by like to around 80%, which means their valuations aren't actually driven by the underlying fundamentals of the company. Um, They're driven by the the kind of whim of these these collective investors. So there's a bit of a premium on Chinese A shares. So if you see more money flowing in, rather than actually seeing valuations go up, you might see valuations come down and be more accurate to reflect the underlying companies.
0: In view of all this, should you try and get more exposure to Chinese A-shares now that they are perhaps a bit more accessible and might be valued in a better way?
1: There's a, there's a balance to consider here. So the, the onshore market actually includes a lot of more domestic Chinese consumer stocks, which is, you know, the big exciting story about China is this growing middle class and the growing consumer. So in that sense, yes, actually allocation to A-shares might be very interesting for these really good kind of growing companies that are going to do very well in, in the future. But at the same time, the valuations at the moment, according to Lion Trust, are about 20% higher than you would see on the A shares market. So you might want to wait a little while until you see those valuations reflect the fundamentals more.
0: Sophie, do you think inclusion of Chinese mainland listed shares in the MSCI Emerging Market Index will be good for investors?
2: I think ultimately it will be good for for investors. As as Taha was saying, the Chinese market is difficult to get access to and it's very volatile. It goes up and down a lot because, as as Taha was saying, there's a lot of retail investors in there and it's subject to to their whims. So hopefully with with the inclusion of China in the MSCI Emerging Market Index, it will mean that, that the Chinese Market, stock market will change a bit. It will become a bit more predictable. It, shouldn't, it should be less volatile. It will reduce some of the speculative nature by introducing long-term investors into the market as people have to buy the shares for inclusion in the index. And hopefully it will also deepen the liquidity in the market as well. And that, that's, that's really important. And I think the other thing that will change uh, with this inclusion, hopefully, is that it will put pressure on the Chinese regulators to actually improve the market conditions uh, in the Chinese stock market. It can be quite difficult at the moment for an investor in the Chinese stock market because the Chinese companies aren't all, always that predictable. They can, they can hide a lot of their information. There isn't the full disclosure and the global corporate governance standards that we're used to in other markets. So, so that should all improve and make it much easier for foreign investors to get access to, to as you were saying, the second largest stock market in
0: the world. No, you said that hopefully things will improve but that's hopefully and not yet. I think investors have to bear in mind in the MSI Emerging Markets Index, suddenly there's, um, I don't know, there's some slew of shares that perhaps um, are slightly more questionable. So what effect will it have on that index and should investors... Add to or avoid MSCI emerging markets tracker funds and ETFs in view of this?
2: Well, it's going to be very slow. Um, and there's only 234 stocks at the moment that are eligible for inclusion. Um, and they're being added in two stages in June and September. So once that process is completed by September, the Chinese A shares will actually only be about 0.8% of the, the emerging market index and 0.1% of the world index. So it's a very small part at the moment, it will grow. Um, so once Once it's fully completed over a few years, China could be as much as 17% of the emerging market index. But this takes a long time. So, for example, when they started to include Korean shares, that took six years. And Taiwanese shares took nine years to fully be incorporated in in the index. So it takes time to do this. So in terms of whether people should be adding exposure now, I don't think that the inclusion of these shares is is any reason to suddenly increase your exposure or not. If you want that exposure to emerging markets and it forms part of your overall risk strategy and overall asset allocation, then this maybe doesn't necessarily have to change your view.
0: And what about Chinese A shares Is it a good time to get more exposure to e-shares specifically? Personally, I would probably wait a bit, as as Taha was saying. There's no reason to
2: to jump in with with both feet now just because we're going to see these asset flows in. I think it will take time. And while there will be a sort of 18 billion capital inflow into these shares, I'd be very nervous about necessarily jumping in with both feet at this moment. Uh, Chinese shares are always quite risky.
0: That said, if you can take the risks and wait out the volatility... Taha, how can you, as a UK investor, get access to Chinese shares?
1: So there's a there's a few ways, as ever. Um, there are lots and lots of um, actively managed funds that um, dedicate to China. There's some ETFs that do so as well. In fact, we include a a, a Chinese A share in the top fifty. Um, so do have a look at that if that's the way you want to do it. But also there are Chinese managers, there's emerging market managers and um, kind of Asian equity managers that all include China in their in their mandate.
0: Okay. Now, you mentioned um, there's an ETF, but we did also say earlier that sometimes in some markets, active can be better. So in China, should you go active or passive?
1: The general consensus, kind of as, uh, as Sophie was saying, is you should probably go active here. Um, it's If you speak to the more professional investors and wealth managers and stuff like that, they, they all tend to favour active in this region. There are corporate governance issues that you have to consider for each individual company, and you you can't really take those, those decisions via an ETF or passive investing.
0: Okay, and what kind of active fund should you go for?
1: Uh, so as I said, there's a, there's a few. At the moment, I would probably recommend going by an emerging market or an Asian manager rather than going for a dedicated China fund. It's a, it's a very risky bet, uh, and these, these funds and underlying shares can be very volatile. And if you give go to an emerging market or an Asian manager, they're more able to decide what's the best amount to allocate to China at any, any given time. With that in mind, there are a few that um, are heavily weighted towards China. So if you are really convicted and want access to Chinese shares, then there's a few that have, you know, some as much as 40%.
0: Okay. And so what will be a a good regional fund with which to get um, Uh, exposure to China?
1: So one I like is um, the Veritas Asian Fund. It has about 37% in China. It's spread across Asian developed and emerging markets and, you know, with a good allocation to China. But the reason I like it actually is because it has 28% in consumer stocks. And, you know, that's one of the real growth stories in China that people are talking about more and want to get access to.
0: Sufi, what are your favourite ways for getting your clients' exposure to China?
2: I would say I absolutely agree. Direct investment in China is very difficult uh, and Chinese shares can be very volatile. So when we look to get exposure to China, we tend to look at doing it indirectly. So either, as you say, using a, a broader Asia index or an Asian manager, looking at Korean stocks, looking at Taiwanese stocks, who do a lot of importing and exporting from China. So that's quite a good way to get that investment. And generally, as, as the demographic in China... Changes as we have this burgeoning middle class and they're spending more. Even just looking at some of the big multinationals that are really selling into China, the likes of Nike, for example, really have that Chinese focus, and that that can be a reasonably effective indirect way to get exposure to China without taking too much risk.
0: Okay, now you mentioned you um, quite like using as it was broad regional Asian funds. So, what kind of investors are they suitable for? And is there any particular Broad regional Asian fund that you like. Um, if we look at the, the sort of good managers, I mean, they're,
2: Emerging markets are always um, at the riskier end of the scale um, because by the very nature that their, their economies are developing. Um, so we generally look to to have higher exposures, obviously, for those clients of ours that, that are happy with higher risk. In terms of uh, other broader Asian managers that we might use for clients, the likes of the First Day Asia Pacific Leaders Fund uh, has always been a very good fund that that, that we've used.
0: Okay, thank you, Sufi, some really helpful suggestions. And see this week's big theme in the magazine or on the website for Taha's full report on investing in China. Earlier this week, it was reported that Consumer Prices Index Inflation, CPI, fell to 2.4% in April, down from 2.5% in March, the figure at which many analysts expected it to stay at. This is the lowest level of CPI inflation um, since March last year. Sophie, a big concern for savers and investors is inflation erosion. So is it a good thing that inflation has fallen? Well, the, the
2: impact of inflation falling, uh, actually, while it does mean that investors don't have such a high hurdle rate to keep their uh, investments and their savings up with inflation, the other thing that it affects, obviously, is the Bank of England's interest rate decisions. And now there was a lot of talk that, that they would raise interest rates in May. And that's obviously has a big impact on savers, because they, the interest rate on cash at the moment is so small, that any changes in interest rates upwards would make a big difference for savers. But obviously the inflation falling means that that interest rate decision is now pushed back, possibly until August, most likely until November. So while inflation falling uh, is good uh, in terms of the fact that they don't have to get such a a big rate to to ensure that their savings keep up with inflation, it does mean that that, that interest rates will rise at a much slower
0: pace. So are there any type of investments that might benefit from this fall in inflation? Well, because this Bank of England decision is put back and interest rates are likely to rise
2: at a slower rate, really we look at fixed interest investments as probably being the main beneficiaries of those. Um, As interest rates go up, uh, fixed interest investors obviously find, find it more difficult. But already... Government bonds, for example, are at a pretty high price. The yields are reasonably low still. Um, So I think it's a hard argument at the moment to be a buyer of of government bonds. But generally, the the fact that inflation is going down should mean that consumers feel a bit happier, particularly as we've seen wage growth now exceed uh, inflation. So hopefully that should help the the retailers and and maybe mean that people could spend a little more. Is the fall inflation detrimental to any types of investment? It's obviously detrimental to the likes of index-linked bonds, which are linked to the rate of inflation. So any time inflation falls, then the capital value and the coupon that you get from in- index-linked bonds will fall. But they do add a reasonable amount of protection and diversification into people's portfolios and if we are in an environment where we think that inflation might be at this sort of sticky level for two and a half percent or might even go up over the next few years as we've seen sterling fall again uh, and oil prices rise then uh, they can form a really good part of people's portfolios still.
0: In view of um, all this, you know, um, some investments possibly benefiting, some not doing so well, should investors change their asset allocation purely on the basis of changes in inflation? No, I don't, think, I don't think anyone would need to do
2: that. It's a, it's a very small uh, fall in inflation. And Andrew Sentence, Bank of England, said that he expects this, this 2.5% to, to be around with us for a while, this inflation, probably isn't going to fall back to the 2% that the Bank of England is mandated at for a while. Um, as I said, oil prices is going up that's being reflected on the forecourts and, and people's petrol prices going up. Um, so that will feed through to, to inflation. And, and I don't think that, that this small fall should have
0: any impact on, on investors' long-term portfolios. Thank you, Sophie. Some really good points again. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on ETFs, China and how to deal with inflation in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.